Welcome to episode 6 of season 3 of Matiri Gemi, a bi-weekly podcast where we help you learn the Ayekoyo culture, history, and heritage in English and in a fun, light-hearted way. My name is Jeriwa Dihona Demojiro wa Barea Kehara. And with me is Wayakiwa Yeshaga and King Oriwa Kanyi. In today's episode, your heart will break. But at the same time, you will be riveted and you will be pulled in by the story of two heroes. One controversial and the other extremely courageous and everything that speaks to Oshaba. Today, we'll be talking about Hari Thuku and Muthoni Nyajiro. And we'll talk about how they both agitated against colonial injustice. What's interesting is we'll talk about how Harithuku got to be known as, with the nickname of the chief of the women, and how his legacy integrated with the legacy of Muumudoni Nyajiro. So here's the last thing I'll say. If you don't know who Muthoni Nyajiro is, then you need to lean in. Because her history is integral in terms of our history as Yagekoyo. So lean in and enjoy. Today we're talking about another great Moyekoyo hero. Wayaki, who are we talking about today? Uh, we're talking about a, a, a great uh, Kenyan legend, a Kenyan hero. Uh, his name is Hari Duku. Ah, love it. All right. Before we go to Kingori, maybe you could introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Wayakiwage Shaga, Moshara Wabaria Muturi, Hamarikawa Mawadani Dewa Mwagi, and I am happy to be here. Ah, welcome. Kingori, over oh. to you. Oh, ne. This is Kingori Wakanyi, Moboywa Barea Marigo. We hail from Teto, and I'm happy to be here today to share with you this amazing story of actually a dynamic duo, Haeduku and Modoni Nyajiro. Ah. So I think we have to start with who are they? So in 1895, in Kabui, in Kiambu County, mm. um, Haruduku was born. We don't know too much about his parents, um, but there are indications that he came from a very humble background. And we know this because uh, he attended a Kabui gospel, uh, gospel mission school mm-hmm. where he was um, kind of there at, at their charge. Uh, he was there for four years, so that's all the education he got. Um, wow. Yeah, that's it. Eh, 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 sorry, I just have to say this. That's a big deal mm-hmm. because Harry Thuku was in our history books. Yes. He was. Right? Yep. So he made an impact even with his four years of education. Beautiful. Go right, ahead. Right. And obviously these are those early learners, right, mm-hmm. in, in, in our history. Because we know that around uh, in 1911, he was about 16 years of age, and he traveled to Nairobi and was able to get a job as a manage, as a messenger. Yeah. And it's well at this job where we, you know, he, he, he ends up being imprisoned 
for two years after charges of some kind of petty theft, I think it was something with a, a forged check or something like that, that um, or the charges against him. We don't know too much about that. Uh, all we know is that uh, after two years, he was released and sometime in 1914, uh, Thuku became a typesetter mm-hmm. uh, for, um, uh, you know, this gazetti called The Leader. Mm-hmm. It was a European settler newspaper. So he was typing. <clears throat> yeah. So he, that just speaks to his brilliance, right? right? And it confirms that intelligence mm-hmm. is not a factor of Western education. No, well, no, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, and, and don't forget now, ty- typesetter is not a type typer mm. or a typist. Mm-hmm. Typesetter is a guy who would, would set the letters. Oh. On the you know remember that old technology or people who make who made uh, this is a screen they do a screen yeah but you had to set the letters first mm-hmm. um, and make I don't know what they call them, those terms but you know so that now you just put ink and then you can print multiple papers yeah oh, you, that right? was before my time but yeah, <laughs> clearly, yeah. clearly your time. we get it yeah. <laughs> uh, actually the reason I know that is because uh, my dad. Uh, used to run a printing press. Ah. So yeah, he he would t- talk to us about typesetting and all that mm. back in the day. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. So it was, you know, it, it was something I think you could, um, with some education, learn and be able to get it done. And that's what he was doing. So, and it was during uh, this time that he started to kind of really see what was going on and reflect uh, on the African condition. Because this is a magazine, this is a newspaper. And a lot of information is coming right through him. Mm-hmm. He's the one having to put the stories out. You know, he's part of that media um, system. Uh, so we know that in 1918, he then got a job with the government, uh, the, actually the treasury in Nairobi. Um, remember at this point, Kenya is not yet um, a colony. We are still... Uh, a protectorate. This mm-hmm. is 1911. This is 1918. 18. 18. 18. Right. So, so this is now he's working for the British government, right, mm-hmm. uh, at their foreign office and in the Treasury Department. And so, uh, you know, during he started having really good connections and making really good friendships with especially uh, leaders in the Indian uh, community, uh, who are obviously made the bulk of who the, who was being hired in these places. Um, there was one particular one, uh, member and leader of the Indian Association that was called M.A. Desai, mm. who would become kind of one of his, you know, strong allies. Uh, but during this period, um, he kind of cultivated more friendships, a lot of African elites uh, in Nairobi. Remember, now we're talking 1918. Nairobi is brand new. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a like two, two, three streets, mm-hmm. right? Uh, everyone is from somewhere because they picked a swamp. Yeah. So there's a lot of people. There are a lot of people coming in. Obviously, it's dominated by the Indians, the Kikuyu who are nearby, maybe the Kambas. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had already kind of already had a cosmopolitan pool even mm-hmm. at that time from its onset. Uh, so he's making a lot of uh, friendships. The people called Ichmaemo Gai. We've heard about them, uh, Job Moshushu, there's Norman Mboya, uh-huh. uh, Francis Hamisi, some other names, uh, Mohammed Sheikh, uh, and others. Eh? And so these folk would um, kind of be the, the main friends that would uh, get him sensitized and politicized and things of that nature. Um, so that by the time Kenya is declared a colony, that was July 23rd, 1920, 
um, you know, he's there, he's, he's aware, he's politically active. And life was getting tougher for Africans. And the reason why it was getting tougher is because we're talking about now post-World War II, mm-hmm. right? World War II has ended in 1918. There is a huge... Um, World problem. War One. World, World War One. sorry. Yeah. Thank you. World War I. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge problem in, in, in Europe. These uh, veterans were looking for quick wins. And so they were kind of being pushed to go to the, to the colonies. And remember, Kenya was designated a settler colony. Yeah, what does that mean? Right. So this means that of all the places that they were kind of determined were their protectorates, Kenya was very attractive for them to come and actually live and make them their new home and displace their natives, us. Yeah. So, and specifically, what they would now call the White Highlands, which were the Mount Kenya region and some parts of Rift Valley, they really liked the, the atmosphere. They liked, it was cool, it was green, it was just beautiful. And that's what they had picked out. And, you know, I guess it's... Uh, and it was fertile. Yeah, it was fertile. fertile. Yeah. So, so they could create, generate cash crops. Yes. Uh, which at some point even they banned uh, the natives, so to speak, from planting cash crops. They could only p- plant... I don't know if you guys remember when we did GHC, there was... Or, or agriculture, there was cash crops and subsistence crops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So one of the main reasons that they settled in in the White Highlands was one, even the weather was very similar to some parts of uh, England and the UK, sort of rainy, mm-hmm. green. So when they came to, to, to find that climate, it was something that they were accustomed to without mm-hmm. the harsh winters. Right. Yeah. I mean, and places like Lemuru, Tigoni, mm-hmm. exactly. uh, places like in Nyandarwa, up there in Yahururu, these are cool areas. Yes. They, they just loved it, you know, yeah. and they wanted that. Um, actually, and, and let me set um, a little more with the background because it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, even at this time, and even before Harithuku was, um, you know, active, there was an issue of taxes that Oyaki had mentioned earlier. Uh, the native tax system had been set up in 1901. Mm. So even when we were now a protectorate, which remember were declared a protectorate, I think in 1895. Mm-hmm. In 1901, each household was expected to pay one rupee annually. Now, you may ask, what is one rupee annually today? We can't, you know, it had to put numbers to it. But one rupee was enough wealth to buy a plot of land in Nairobi. What? Yes. And you were supposed to pay that? Annually. Annually. Now, wow. of course, you can't wow. uh, imagine we're talking about the same kind of wealth today right. because land did not have the same value. Uh, but, but still. It was, it was a lot of money. Significant amount of money. Yeah. Um, and then in 1902, it would go to two rupees. Just the next year, they oh would double gosh. it. And three rupees the following year. Mm. Okay? That was how fast taxation was being increased. Uh, not only that, they, they ended up creating... Um, um, uh, you know, so, so let me just pause right there. What, one thing that would happen with just requiring a heart tax was that each family would have to determine which one 
of us in this family are we going to send to work for a muindi or a mzungu because first of all we don't even have the money there's no currency it's not in circulation the only way to get it is to send one of you to go to go do just that right and go as they keep increasing job. the hard tax you have to keep sending more, more people, and more people right and so that's one part of the backdrop and then there was a second <laughs> you know the impact to, uh, of the hard tax is that it started killing off the gira the digi remember we've talked about ah. this because they're counting well how many houses are here and therefore you have to pay 1 rupee per or 2 house. or 3 per house mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. so what happened is that the men started realizing this dingira is no longer viable especially the younger ones and they would say ah, let me just move in with my wife and we live in the same nyoba one of the that had devastating impact in our in our culture Like something what? we can I don't know if we can Yeah like what Yeah let's talk Wayaki. about Yeah uh so one the men were not used to so why does a man have a digira Um so the digira is the in a in a moshe or in a home it's the lead, it's the source, sign of leadership right So when the man moves into um his wife's house at that time Remember one of the reasons for separation was when the boys if he had sons the sons would eventually move in with him or be able to be taught the ways of men by the man and then he would avoid because we never used to have the kind of dress we had today the avoid the indecency of meeting your daughters mm. uh, if they were not dressed appropriately so the the daughters would if if remember we talked about the the orere the kerere yeah in season 1 when we talked about the bushie season season 2 right yeah so uh there were many reasons why the vigira was important and the nyoba was important another thing is because the mogekoyo uh one of his main ways that he prays uh was through magogona mm. uh and if you have an igogona you have to uh be stay away from uh contact with you know sexual contact with your wife uh, and so on be able to be away from her for a few days and the digira helped with that separation yeah uh another thing was the one of the mogiros is you can't be in contact with your wife when she's on her period uh, in sexual contact and so the digira and the nyoba made that possible i see right okay. so it was separate it was the, the digira and the nyoba have their importances and we are just kind of summarizing but it really changed how the man lived and how the woman lived and you know even brought conflict between the man the woman the children because they all squeezed to live in this one uh yeah. setting yeah that makes sense and <coughs> given our culture back then Right I believe it probably felt to them to be like a great indignity Absolutely. for both parties right Absolutely right. It, it was yes. it, it was it was awful yeah. I mean we're talking about a situation where even from a discipline perspective the Gira was kind of seen as the enforcer of the law mm. so if if mom did, could not get you to do something she'd send you go now I'm sending you to an escalation point mm. and th- that kind of system helped and even mm-hmm. and I think I think it still works today those kinds of uh tactics on how to do with children um but you know these things all came crumbling down 
um, with, um, you know, the hard tax. The hard tax. Mm-hmm. And um, in 1902, then you have the Crown Land Ordinance. Okay. And this one simply declared all land belongs to Britain. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. And, and that's it. And settlement now really followed. Like when, when that was declared, then that's when you see a wave of white people come in. I remember we were talking about the IBEAC, the, that company initially kind of trying to do trade. Trade kind of is now working out very well. They declare this a protectorate, meaning we're protecting the area against slavery, against themselves because mm-hmm. they are fighting. That was a pretext. And now, very quickly, you know, seven years later, it's their land, all of it. Yeah, to Niote. And then um, in 1910, we have what we call the Paul and hat tax ordinance. Now they've added a poll tax. Poll tax means all men 25 years and up were to pay an additional tax. So, so this was especially painful because um, you have the hat tax already. And now you have a poll tax for each grown man. So each grown man is paying taxes. And now they have to force now the women to go work because they have to come up with now the hard tax. Before you could probably sacrifice a son to go work and then they'll help you pay the hard tax. Mm-hmm. But now all men have their own separate tax. And so the women have to now, either either your sons work double and pay the hard tax or now the women also have to start working for the white man. Right. This is breaking my heart. The injustice of it all, the cruelty, like it's cruel, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, yeah. this is just happening. No, hang in there because there's more. Yeah, and, and I'll add something to that. It, it is, uh, you've had this, the phrase taxation without representation. representation. Yeah. It's, it's, there's no representation. Yeah. This is just imposition of yeah. uh, mm-hmm. unjust, unfair tax yeah. uh, on, uh, or, or on the individuals who they're not getting any representation. They're not, uh, like the Crown uh, Lands Ordinance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They had not, they couldn't, couldn't claim that it was unjust, yeah. yet they're being taxed. And, and, yeah, and the crazy thing is, I think this seems like it was a systematic or strategic way to force Africans to become slaves, yes. right? Because that's all it is. You're a slave, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You don't have a choice. Right, yeah. we, we were resources to them at right. that point. Right. Absolutely. And imagine, you know, sometimes we can't fathom the pain, but imagine your own home where you live. Someone moves there one day, says they own it. You've been paying taxes and mortgage and you bought it, right? They own it. And then now you have to pay them to live in the home. Mm. Right. And in order to pay them to live in the home, you have to become their 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 forced labor in your own home right like when you start to think about it that way it's heartbreaking Mm. it's heartbreaking Mm. completely Mm. yeah it was it was tough and it got tougher because now with the end of world war one in 1918 britain implemented something called the soldier settlement scheme um 1919 was when it really kicked off and saw a renewed wave of settlement in kenya now they're like sending all their World War I folks to Kenya to become settlers. That's who's coming. 
uh, and they started just hu- issuing huge swaths of land, you know, of, you know, just huge, I and mean, just taking whatever they wanted. And the policy was to displace uh, the Agekoyo and, and you Push know, them. grab the so-called White Highlands. Um, in addition, I mean, so the, the settlers were kind of ill-funded because after war, who has money? Mm-hmm. And so this ill-fund, uh, lack of funds, lack of equipment uh, to farm, even if you come and you've been given land, you can't, you don't, you're not being given money. Uh, so they need, they, so you know, made the foreign office um, in 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 England kind of come up with another plan. They needed these settlers to be supported, and so to set up their new enterprises. And that's why um, they declared Kenya 19, in 1920 a colony to give legality to that settlement, right? And then leverage the chiefs now that they had been setting up as the administrators to exercise, um, you know, all possible lawful, quote-unquote, influence to induce everyone to work in the, you know, in the labor fields for these new incoming soldiers and settlers, mm-hmm. right? Because they couldn't do it any other. They couldn't pay, really. They didn't have, these guys didn't have the money to pay to get their farms set up, so they just forced the people to do the work. And so that's what's happening at this point. So already people were not making much, right? But as of 1920, their income was reduced by a third. What? Yes, to support this wave. Because there's no money. It is post-war. Nobody yeah. has money. Even the UK doesn't The UK have is money, actually yeah. broke. Mm-hmm. And your, but your taxes are not being reduced. No, the, the taxes are being increased. And then you're being paid a third less. And now the chiefs have been given kind of like all the power and they've been told, make sure these people go work so they can pay taxes. And so a third of the income was being retained by the chiefs as taxes. This is what would happen. And then the chiefs now started to kind of use excessive force where they would detain you if you refuse. And not just that. If Let's say they wanted you to dig a trench, you would be kind of like held in that area for days, if not weeks, until you finish digging what they were supposed to dig. Because now they were just given, they were told, go do whatever you, you want to do. And don't remember, don't forget, most of these chiefs now, the ones who are given power, are often dubious characters already. Right. Mm-hmm. Someone who's a kind of an outcast, yeah. a son of a chief who's not liked, who's kind of have a chip on his shoulder. They'd pick those characters and groom them to become the chiefs at that point. And so these people are already had a chip on the shoulder and had a feel they, they felt that they they were not welcome in the community for some reason there was some they, they, there was friction on most uh, most of these guys there was a bit of friction and so that's what was happening um, and the chiefs and they are now so called askari were given so much power that they it became apparent that there were a lot of rapes happening of these women who are being now held remember your your mano is already gone. Your husband is is working, working somewhere, somewhere else. in a farm, far away, and you've home. been left to the chief's uh, protection. And now the chief is, you know, make these people need to work and do X, and it's up to you. And, and they're being really leaned on heavily. And so this is what's happening in 1920 when we see Harithuku kind of uh, step up. And uh, and another. F- fact is that, uh, just to give a little bit of context around this issue, in the 20s, 
the hut and poll taxes accounted for 70% of income the government was getting wow. for its operations. So it was a significant source of income, income and it was being used to prop up white settlement. Mm. So you talk about taxation without representation. Mm-hmm. The representation is there, but to the wrong, <laughs> the representation is being offered to the wrong people. Right. The people who are not being taxed. Right. You know, so that's what's happening um, in this particular Ooh, Can I just go off tangent a little bit? Mm. What it's, this for me has been hard to hear, but what it triggers me is this, you know how, we now look up, and I'm saying not we, as sometimes as a community, mm. to the white settlers, some of them who still remain there, right? Mm-hmm. But just as that reminder that looking up to that history is almost like legitimizing and making what happened to our ancestors okay. Mm. Right, yeah. Yeah. I agree 100%. And it's it's disheartening that we, this is not the history that we learned when we went to school. Yeah. It's not. It's not. It's really, this history has been orally passed down and, uh, and a few authors have written down uh, their accounts and that's how we know that this was happening. Because when we went to school and when colonialism ended in 1963 when we got independence... These truths were not published in the textbooks for us to learn. Right. So this is really what was going on. Um, you're right. The way they paint the history is that, hey, we came to civilize, uh, you know, the savage and rescue them from themselves. You know, but that's really not what was going on. Uh, so, and Harithuku is very clear on this. He's seeing it now. You know, he's he's... And he wants to do something about it. And so in response to all of this, um, the Kikuyu Association was formed uh, that year. And this is 1920. KCA. Just, just KA, initially. Oh, Kikuyu Association. Yes. Okay. And this was Harithuku um, with those other friends we had talked about earlier. And Harithuku is a secretary. Uh, and he's trying to find a way, they're all trying to find a way to have a, co- a co- collective bargaining uh, to start agitating against working conditions. Um, then, you know, Duku felt that KA was not demanding enough uh, from the British authorities in Nairobi and came up with a strategy where they're saying, maybe we need to just talk to London, right? And um, so he, and because there were some frictions internally, he led a breakaway group called the Yankee Kuyu Association. Mm. You can clearly see there's like a yeah, 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 YKA. Eh, YKA now YKA, comes up. Yeah. Now YKA, um, which was formed in 1921 uh, to speak out against uh, especially compulsory labor and work, uh, the poor working conditions uh, and increase in heart attacks and all these things that were happening. Um, uh, oh, and uh, now Kipande system has been implemented where every adult has to carry a passbook these, these things they, they really hated. Those were the main re- things that were going up against. Um, he, he was really against this and he started kind of uh, sensitizing the public and how holding kamkunjis and meetings and, you know, just kind of notifying everyone, hey, this is what's going on. This mm-hmm. is not right and why it's not right. You know, just sometimes people just follow things without re- really thinking about them. Mm-hmm. Harithuku is very good at re- holding up a mirror against folks and saying, do you think this is 
what should be happening. Right. He's sensitizing folks. And so they can see that this is now colonial rule is not a good thing. They're starting to see it. Um, and this is same year Kenya became, becomes a colony. Yeah. There's, a, there's anti-colonialism happening, right? Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Let me pause you there, yeah, sure. uh, King Ari. So the Kipande system, you know, when Jerry, when you went to get your ID, when you turned, uh, became an adult, people would call that Kipande. Mm-hmm. Kipande ID mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. on. The Kipande was, actually it wasn't, it was from any male over 15, uh, uh-huh. mostly men, would have to wear it around their neck. And it was like, it was called uh, Kipande or Passbook. Mm. And it had writings that, oh, this guy is very lazy and so on. And it was in English. And so if you couldn't read English, you didn't know you didn't what, know what was, was written on your, on your oh Kipande. So it could be like, maybe you missed work uh, and so that, right, this guy is mm. very lazy. Uh, he should be beaten. Or like all sorts of negative things would be written around. Oh, and you're carrying this thing and you have to have it. If you don't have it, you'll be arrested. That was punishable by itself. Yeah. You have to have it around your neck. It was literally like a, a, a chain mm-hmm. around your neck. So the Kipande system, uh, we call our IDs Kipande, but it has a long and uh, unsavory history for our uh, people in Kenya. Wow. Yeah, so, so Thuku now leading the YKA center document containing all the grievances uh, to some guy called Mr. Watkins, who was a native commissioner now in London. Okay. They never get any traction. And so he's thinking, hmm, what's going on? So June 10th, 1921, um, he sends a damning open letter to the East African Standard uh, where he makes public his grievances. Mm-hmm. Uh, and clearly now he's, everyone knows who he is after this letter uh, to, that's published in East African Standard. Uh, so Thuku felt that um, you know YKA at this point was not really being effective, mm-hmm. uh, and so he reformed it as EAA, East African Association. This kind of shows you that now he's thinking beyond, yeah, right, yeah, his immediate community. Yes. Um, and and, that, and in July 21, uh, that's when he did it to give it kind of a, a national outlook. Um, Arethuku, you know, started recruiting. Um, you know, more representation from outside the Agikoyo community. Um, and so it, it was becoming a better oiled machine. Okay. Um, so, you know, these are the first generation of educated Kenyans, you know, and they're they are using it, you know, yeah. b- despite now being christened, you know, now they are, these guys are now Christian. Yeah, now he's Harry. Yes, he's Harry. Because now we notice this is the first time yeah, he we had seen, a name yeah. with, with an English name. Exactly. Yeah. Now mm-hmm. there's Harry, they're Christians, they are literate now, they're embracing Western culture. He's, every every single photo you see of Harry Thuku is wearing a suit. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but they're realizing all of that is not improving our lot. So yeah. this so-called being civilized yeah. is not helping me, right. the African. Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, that, he, and he's teaching people, he's telling people, even at Okisoma, even if you study hard and whatever, this system is, is, has been set against you. Yeah, the you know, promise is not becoming fulfilled. It's exactly. not maturing. It's being yes. set up for failure, basically. Yeah. yeah, 
Yeah. So um, another thing, um, because he was sensitizing people about what was going on, he, for some reason, he gravitated the most towards the plight of women. Mm. And um, he, re- he really, it really pained him, as it should all of us, to see his mothers, his sisters, you know, going through the kind of brutality they were going through. And I think that rings true for most men. I mean, right. I'd rather you chop at me than chop at my sister or my mom, you mm-hmm. know? And so you see him kind of getting a new nickname mm-hmm. um, and he's being called Monenewa mm. Anya which means chief of the women. Mm. People are now giving him this nickname and it's spreading. Mm-hmm. And so it, the, a strong part of his followership and support starts coming from the women. And so in 1922, uh, which is when he uh, would be arrested and detained, um, there was a huge protest out of, outside of the Nairobi police station, which is when he was being held. Uh, and this is where the story of now our next heroine kicks in, Nyajiro. Ah, yes. uh, who come into, he comes, she really comes into sharp focus. And so our next heroine is Mere Mudoni Nyajiro, mm-hmm. whom I'm, I'm hoping that folks who are listening have heard about her because I, you know, you need to have heard about this woman. <laughs> I haven't. You haven't? You haven't? Oh, I haven't. Then, oh, okay. you know, you're in for a treat. <laughs> wow. Um, so this is a woman who was born in Wethaga, uh, Moranga. Mm-hmm. And we don't know much about her backstory, only that uh, she was living uh, with her grown-up stepdaughter, um, and it was an ardent follower of Harithuku. That's really what we know about the backdrop. Um, um, we don't even know when she was born. We just know that she was a middle-aged woman at this point. Um, but on March 14th, 1922, a day after Harithuku was arrested, she was among about 8,000 people wow. uh, or so who showed up uh, to, the, to a protest, that one outside wow. the Nairobi police station. They, uh, so initially they prayed for his safety and then they dispersed that evening. Then they showed up the next day. Uh, when they showed up the next day, uh, you know, they they really they were wondering what's going on. They're not hearing any positive news. What's you know what's up? You know, they they, they can't figure it out. Is it being released or not? Yeah, well, you know, there's no, there's no real news, no updates. Uh, what did he do? We don't know. You know that kind of situation. Uh, but there's this lady called Elizabeth Waro who kind of gave an eyewitness account mm-hmm. uh, and said that um, uh, that, that a, a guy called James Njoroge, who was um, a, part of an EAA, the EAA, started administering oaths to people. Mm-hmm. And about 200 women uh, were given an oath. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not normal. <laughs> you know, women never used to partake of oaths. No, in Kikuyu culture. So this is this was very controversial, um, but it happened. Um, it was forbidden because most of the time these things uh, they they affected Roshiaro, your your birthright, and your 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 children and things of that nature. So women have really avoided taking things of that nature and oath. Oaths are, are very hard to undo. 
um, we would see those oaths happen later and everyone taking oaths by later. That point, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in the 40s and 50s 50s, during yeah. the, the Mau Mau rebellion. Mm-hmm. But at this point, this is like controversial. Yeah. But either way, they, they, it, they, they take the oath and the next day, they just appear to be more organized. And they're clearly leading a charge. Mm-hmm. So the this women. is, yeah, the now, yes, women. yes. Now this is March 16, now March 16, mm-hmm. um, where six officials of the EAA and people in that crowd were kind of selected to go and meet with some Mr. Bowring, who was the um, colonial secretary, who assured them, hey, due process is being followed. Don't worry, Thuku, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. He will face trial. And then told them, please go and tell the people to, de- to disperse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the crowd wouldn't have it. They were like, the crowd was like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. We thought you're going to release him. You're not releasing him. That's all we want to. We came to yeah. ask you to release him. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and so the people started kind of starting to disperse slowly mm. when the women kind of surged forward. Yeah. Right? And started to march and push towards the police station. Now, wow. this, this, this was happening on what is today Harithuku Road. And it's, there's a police station on this side, and on the other side, there's Norfolk Hotel, right? Mm-hmm. And this is what's happening now in between. And there are um, European revelers in Norfolk kind of just doing their thing. Right. Happy Valley mode. <laughs> Drinking a <tasca. laughs> Having their katasca. Right. And on this side, all these people have gathered thousands. Um, and so it is said that um, as when, you know, now guys are starting to disperse still, even as the women are charging, um, the women started calling them cowards, you know, and accused the delegation of having been bribed. You know, they were just agitating. And then the men kind of, you know, they would change their minds, start coming back, you know, that kind of thing. Until the women, um, uh, and, and then, then this is where Mudoni mm-hmm. Nyajiro steps forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, she surged to the front of the crowd, lifts her dress, okay, over her head, and cried out, you know, you know, take my dress and give me your trousers. That's what he, she tells them. <laughs> yeah? You men are cowards. Uh, where are you? What are you waiting for? Our leader is in there. Let's get him. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. This is what she says. This, this, this is actually not a new thing in Gikuyu culture. This is called Goturamira. Uh-huh. Is to, to, show to show your nakedness, show your nakedness yeah. and it was a big deal if um, it was a, such a huge insult such a huge challenge among the Gekoyo for a woman especially a woman of that age who was old enough to be your mother to show her nakedness it was like the most degrading thing that could happen to a person mm-hmm. and it surely was going to compel them to redeem themselves yeah. Yeah. right and this is what she was doing. It's a powerful symbol of women's defiance. And actually, we'd see that even later. We'd see yeah. those, you know, symbols like in Amazai yeah. mm-hmm. and those times. Eh? They did these things. Yeah. Uh, but this is what Nyanjiro does. And, um, you know, um, as she does, is all the women present, they started ululating, you know, Gemi uh, with their approval. And, the, and now the crowd started to search forward. Uh, until... Now, the story says that the Askaris had not slept. This is what the story says. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That in these three days, these guys probably hadn't shut their eyelid one time. And so they were under pressure. Yeah. 
they're in the front of that police they just they they're like they are overpowered and so it just proves to be too much and their askaris is open fire what yeah they open fire they open fire and just um unfortunately nyajiro was probably the ex- very first person to take the bullet She was at the front. Yeah, yeah, she was. She was right there. And so, um, estimates say about a hundred or more people died that day. And not only was it the police firing from the police station, but eyewitness accounts say that uh, revelers, the colonial settlers at Norfolk, also started shooting the crowd from the back as they tried to escape. So that's the story. Um, but when all the da- all you know all of that was um after all that happened uh they say the government official record was that only 21 people died um four of which they say were women including Nigeria um and that's the story of uh, Modoni Mere Modoni Nigeria what a woman mm-hmm. right Brave. send so much gratitude to her bravery Indeed. I mean, this was probably the first, not probably, most likely, the first post-colonial right. death wow. mm-hmm. in Kenyan history. Really? Yes. She's the first one to stand up and die for, to, to bring down colonialism. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So then how does it, the story <coughs> end for Harry Thuku? Yeah, so back to Harry. So Harry is uh, dispatched very quickly to Kismayu, mm. Somalia, after being found guilty. Well, it's not even clear what he was being charged for. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, EAA was disbanded, and um, and and then you know government restri- restri- restricted you know organizations from then on only to tribal groupings. Ah, I see, because he had tried to bring. Intercultural, yeah. exactly, inter-ethnic. exactly. Wow. They, they were hell bent on stopping any kind of national uprising. Yeah, divided. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we Divi- divide and rule. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but that's not the end. Um, uh, in 1924, while Harithuku is still in Kismayu, KCA is formed. Now, Kikuyu Central, yeah, Central Association, Association, yeah, uh, which took up that mantle for KEA or whatever. Mm-hmm. So KCA in 1927 uh, would be the ones who recruited Kenyatta to represent them in London. So that's who sends Kenyatta to London, yeah. thrusting him into international stage. 31, 1931, Harithuku is released. Okay. Uh, and f- um, kind of allowed back to go to Kiambu when he promptly joins KCA. It's like that. Yeah. And the next year, he actually becomes a chairperson ah. for KCA. And then 35, he quits KCA mm. and tries to reconstruct EAA but now as the Kenya Provincial Association so the, the what you know there's a little controversy here because it's a um the KPA had a kind of a loyalist tinge to it mm. um one of their rules was actually that every member of this organization and I'm reading this verbatim Every member of this organization will be pledged to be loyal to his majesty and king of Great Britain and the established government and will be uh, bound to do nothing which is not constitutional according to the British traditions or do anything which is calculated um, to disturb the peace, good order and government. 
It's a very yeah. quick turnaround. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a flip. Um, but it wasn't seen that way mm-hmm. at that time. It was seen as someone who, yes, we want to improve the lot of Africans, but we probably are subscribing to the necessity of this colonial experiment from a perspective of what the English were selling, which is we're bringing you education, education religion, blah, blah, blah. Medicine, so, yes, technology, uh-huh. we're improving you. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Making you less savage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So now KPA, Kenya Provincial Association, is there. It's running. Uh, in 1940, KCA is banned. The other one with the Kenya Kenyatta, that one is banned alongside this groundbreaking newspaper that they were having called Moiwithania, which Moiwithania. was now being used to uh, get people... Distribute. Yeah, they were yeah. distributing these, these narratives and yeah. people were getting agitated. Um, you know, and it's now around that time um, where World War II had now reached East Africa, literally. Like, now they were fighting in Tanganyika. Mm-hmm. A lot of young men are being conscripted. In fact, the first conscripts um, who later became Mau Mau from the Kikuyu community, went there calling themselves KCA. Mm. So there was a, a clear connection uh, with the soldiers that served in World War II. Yeah. Uh, 1942, Thuku forms uh, Kenya-Africa Study Union. Okay. Uh, so Kasu would be formed uh, in 44, would be reformed. Then he reforms it as Kenya-Africa Union, dropping that S. Um, with Duku uh, as one of its founding fathers. And this is 44. Um, but he would leave literally months later, like three months later, uh, after um, he was being suspected of kind of still being a sympathizer with the colonial system. Mm-hmm. And he was replaced by another name, big name you've probably heard, James Gishuru. Mm-hmm. Um, in 47, Kenyatta becomes the, kind of like the de facto leader of now this new Kau, Kenya Africa. Uh, Kenya African Union. Uh, by this time, um, kind of Tuku is being viewed as a moderate uh, in political struggle. He's kind of he's still agitating for women's rights. He's agitating for you know better working conditions, but he's not saying Mzungu mm. Yeah, he's still on the fence. Yeah, um, this caused a kind of like a permanent split between him and all the other rising generation of leaders that would come after. Makes right. Sense. Uh, and then he kind of, he was also super, super strongly opposed to the Mau Mau movement ah. and denounced them severally. Uh, even, yes, he did. Yeah, severally. <laughs> December 52 in particular, you know, he, he did it two months right after the election, the state of emergency. Yeah. He literally broadcast a live national, national radio on shaming the Mau Mau, uh, shaming the Kikuyu for supporting Mau Mau. Yeah. And then 54, with, an, uh, with other group of leaders, other chiefs mostly, he's right there at the forefront denouncing Mau Mau. Um, so that, that's his mixed legacy. But, um, you know, his influence kind of, at this point, ebbed. And um, Tukuleta kind of retired to a successful life in coffee farming. And guess what? Uh, you know, he was the first Kikuyu to get a license to... <laughs> to, to so, so to, agitation to, in a sense. Uh, worked for him. Uh, 59, um, he joins the African... He's the first African board member for Kenya Planters Coffee Union. 
1970, June 14, died quietly. Um, after independence, like I said, they have Haruth, Harithuku Road still yeah. named after him yeah. because that yeah. aptly so. Yeah. yeah. I think so. I think, you know, to me, his story represents how humans are so dynamic, right? Mm, right. And we have hero and villain, right? Mm. So on one end, you can see the work he did agitating against colonialism and the systems in his yeah. way. But then on the other hand, you can kind of, you know, see the other side where you're like, well, you didn't push as hard, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, we still have to give him credit, right, for the work he did, yeah. even yeah. if we don't fully agree with some of the His actions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, what's your take in terms of, from a cultural perspective, what can we learn here? So from, uh, I mean, his legacy is definitely mixed, but I think one of the things that uh, he stood for initially when he formed the um, East African Association uh, was th- uh, the fact that he was, he had a nationalistic mindset. He wasn't, uh, it's just Kikuyus that mm-hmm. are should advocate for, freedom or he wasn't just advocating for the Kikuyus. He was, you know, getting uh, or recruiting from a wide range of different communities. And I think if we're going to take away one thing from his legacy um, is being able to work with other communities within our uh, our uh, country and our region, East Africa, right? We need to be able to recognize our differences but also recognize that we're fighting a common fight. We're trying to improve ourselves in, in certain ways. I think where his his legacy falls is where, you know, Nyajiro represents yeah. uh, with bravery yeah. and, and courage. And, you know, her story is a story like the heroes we've talked about, uh, a story of courage, a story of sacrifice, yeah. a story of of uh, um, fearlessness and leadership. And Modoni really advocated for his freedom and then he showed less courage in the subsequent decades. Yeah. Wow. King Ori, this was a riveting story. Thank you for walking us through this history and the legacy of not only Hari Thuku, but also Mozoni Nyajiro. You're very welcome. Wonderful. King Ori. Ah, not King Ori, Waiyaki. Yes. I think we have to talk about the next episode, right? Who, who is the hero we will cover in the next episode? That's a good question. So we are going to talk about uh, Asiya, um, who was known as uh, uh, Moradi Kairetu. And uh, that's going to be an interesting episode. Ah, I can't wait. So make sure you listen to the end and then see you on the next episode.